This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast, where I bring you guests and all kinds of book authors and experts to talk about what you might not hear from your doctor, what you might not hear from your friends, or read on Dr. Google. These are scientists, medical professionals, and others who have found an alternative to lots of prescriptions, lots of... uh, you know, what are they like surgeries and things. And today my guest is Dr. Norm Robillard, and he is an expert in gut health and helping people with the problems that are so common these days, gut problems like SIBO and leaky gut and silent reflux, something we talked a little bit about a minute ago. So Dr. Norm, thank you for being with us and welcome. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I know that this is going to be a hot topic because, gosh, it seems like so many people these days are suffering from reflux and problems sleeping because they have GERD as we get older, especially after 50, maybe put on a few pounds. But you got into this, started as a microbiologist, and you got into this specific solution for people with these problems. Why? Mm, Yes. Um, And it did have to do with reflux, a little bit of IBS as well. Yes, I was uh, I'm trained as a microbiologist. I was working in the biotech industry, but I found in, in my mid to late 30s, I started having a real problem with acid reflux and it became quite bad and quite chronic. Some of the worst issues I had, not only heartburn, but also waking up in the middle of the night with aspiration reflux, mm-hmm. going into my lungs and scared the daylights out of me and wake awesome. up thinking, you know, is this what it's like to die? I mean, it was just, my lungs were on fire. I had no idea why. And I didn't understand what was causing uh, reflux and and my aspiration reflux. I had no idea. I had never been on a diet. I was just, you know, working, doing my job, eating whatever I wanted. So it involved a lot of, you know, pasta and vegetables and meats. I was an omnivore, but it was only when I ended up going on a low carbohydrate diet one of my sons told me I could lose a few pounds if I went low carb and got a treadmill. So I thought, okay, I probably should. But what I realized when I went on low carb made me forget about the weight loss issue because my reflux was dramatically improved in, in really just a few days. Wow. And it just made such an impact on me that I started asking why. And I started reading about what, what is known about reflux? What, what causes it? And I read about things like the lower esophageal sphincter muscles on top of the stomach. They're not closing right. They're too loose. They're relaxing. Everything seemed to have to do with this sphincter muscle. And I thought, how, how do carbohydrates play into this? Because here I am removing a lot of them from my diet and feeling so much better. The theory, and it was a theory, even though it was 60, 70 years old, didn't really explain that. And so I started I actually thought I'd, I'd trace the digestion of fats, proteins, and carbs. 
through the human body and just see what I could learn. And uh, the funny thing is, is just doing that for one or two days, I already came up with an idea that I thought really fit my observation. And that was, uh, you know, as a microbiologist, I realized we have these trillions of bacteria and other microbes in our intestines. And I just thought, I know bacteria ferment carbs, carbohydrates very efficiently for fuel. And I know that most of these strains produce a lot of gas, things like hydrogen, methane, and so forth. And I thought, perhaps I'm just eating more carbohydrates than my body is capable of efficiently digesting. My 39-year-old body is not digesting all of these carbs I'm putting down my throat. And I'm, I'm suffering from carbohydrate malabsorption. And I've got overgrowths or blooms of these bacteria, not necessarily bad or pathogenic bacteria, but bacteria that are normally in my intestines overgrowing. And when they produce all this gas, it creates gas pressure. And that pressure is building up parts of my intestine, translating into the stomach. Uh, it's well known that people with GERD have more intragastric pressure in their stomach. And it's pushing on the sphincter and it's actually driving acid reflux. And so it was a pretty simple idea. But once I, once I latched onto that, I was like, you know, this could be something. And so I took a little time to try to destroy my own theory to be on the safe side. Maybe I had something wrong. But the more I researched this issue, there was a lot of evidence for this way of looking at it. And so, of course, I had to write a book, even though I'd never written one before. And I was I was working at uh, Amgen, the biotech company down in Southern California. So I was up late at night after work writing it. So the book is Heartburn Cured. It's filled with typos. <laughs> it's out of print. But it gets the job done. <laughs> I, I needed to get this off my chest and get this theory out there. And so I spent you know, many years after that, really, it, it, it drove me to, to make a change out of the business I was in and into digestive health. And so I followed that up with some refined approaches. A refined approach that's uh, that I cover in the books, fast tracked digestion. There's an IBS version and a heartburn or a reflux version, and we developed a mobile app. But it's based on restricting certain types of carbs that are hardest to digest and most likely to be fermented. So it's a little more of a finessed approach, and it also has a couple of other parts to it. One is focusing on, you know, not only on limiting these certain types of carbohydrates with these uh, so-called FP points, a calculation I developed, but also really looking deeply for underlying causes. So there's a chapter in the book on underlying causes that can contribute to this issue. And of course, uh, in my consulting practice at digestivehealthinstitute.org, I also use these fundamental ideas, limiting these five types of carbs, working on underlying causes, and there's a whole behavioral and practices realm to this that, that are kind of pro-digestion or pro-absorption. Because when you digest carbohydrates better, more of them will enter your bloodstream. Don't, don't consume too many. You might get diabetes, but fewer of them will feed these blooms of gas-producing bacteria. And for the last 17 years, I've really been focusing on these three parts. And you said that other factors can contribute to this besides food. Just give us a quick mm. summary. What other kinds of factors? Sure. Well, what 
this idea and evolved into was first I really thought perhaps this overgrowth is is SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine. And I, I do think that SIBO is a factor in, in many of these cases. In fact, we're in we're in our second clinical study with the fast track diet. And one of the components is we are doing breath testing to specifically answer the SIBO question. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only form of dysbiosis. We a couple of really key papers in 2014 and 15 indicated that people with IBS, which is closely re- related to, to GERD or acid reflux, have an overgrowth of bacteria in the early part of their large intestine. So that could be a factor and the two might be connected together. And we now know that there's overgrowths of fungi in some people. You know, they call it CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. There's overgrowth of these archaea organisms that produce methane in the gut. And so that's called IMO, and that's now, uh, you know, well-recognized as a problem. But so what, what causes the, these imbalances or these overgrowths, right? That's really your question. And, and there are a lot of things that can feed into this. Motility is a big one. You need to keep things moving through your digestive tract. And anytime that's not, whether it's from surgical adhesions or kinks in your intestines that slow things down or scarring from something like scleroderma. Diabetes can impact the vagus nerve and and cause some motility issues. Gastrointestinal infections are notorious for kind of an autoimmune reaction that slows down motility. So all of those motility issues, stomach acid is a big one. You need it for digestion. You need it to absorb key nutrients and minerals. You need it to prevent pathogens from getting past your stomach from your diet or environment into your intestines. You need it to protect your lungs and your upper throat and sinuses and so forth from bacteria from your own gut. And so this acid really has this kind of two-way block that's important. And it it turns out that hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid is a problem for a number of people, but not everybody. So in my consultation program, one of the first things I do on day one is go through an assessment of the risk factors just for low stomach acid to see if someone needs to be tested or they're at low risk, forget about it for now. That's the way I work through all of these things. So there's many more of these types of factors. There's probably 25 or 30 things that can promote these types of dysbiosis. And it's important to try to work through those systematically to try to rule as many out as you can if you're working with somebody. So you're focused on the things that really matter. The immune response is another one, you know, your own immunity. Do you have enough of this secreted immunoglobulin A in your gut? Do you, are you in an inflammatory state, right? There's a molecule called calprotectin. It's a metal chelating molecule that's in neutrophils, one of our immune cells. And so when people have a very inflammatory state for a number of reasons, but I think, I guess the most well-known ones are like inflammatory bowel disease, this calprotectin level goes through the roof. Because it, it is an antimicrobial molecules and it's in these neutrophils. So when neutrophils are rushing to the site of inflammation, you're going to get high levels of that. So that and some other inflammatory markers are, are in the common comprehensive stool testing. So, I mean, there's, there's many. <laughs> we could spend a whole hour just talking about that. No, um, that, but that was great because, and you answered the last, the last thing you said was an answer to a question that I would have had next, which is, what kind of test is this? So we're basically doing a bowel 
smear or whatever kind of thing or yeah blood it, work and some like would an inflammation yeah. if, if cr crp showed up high on your blood work would that indicate that possibly your intestinal system is also inflamed well i mean that would mean you had a systemic you know right. so it's all in, of it. in your whole body right but right. i do think that a comprehensive blood test with all of the different panels lets you look at a number of things that could be factors we didn't really talk about hypothyroidism, that will change the motility. So it is really good to make sure that not only TSH is in spec, but also T3, T4, that you want to get a good look at the thyroid. And, and then if somebody is hypothyroid, you want to know if it's Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. So there's some antibody testing because if somebody does have an autoimmune condition, whether it's Hashimoto's, whether it's ankylosing spondylitis or rheumatoid arthritis, or type 1 diabetes, it's very common for people with autoimmune issues to have other autoimmune issues. They kind of travel in packs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if I was working with somebody and say we were doing that stomach acid, we were trying to determine if they had adequate stomach acid. And so that would be one of the things I wanted to know. If they had other autoimmune issues, I would look at autoimmune atrophic gastritis, which is also known as pernicious anemia. And that's a simple antibody test. Take a blood sample, they can test it. But here's why it's important. Your own body is attacking these parietal cells, which are located in the body of your stomach. And those are the cells that produce stomach acid. And so imagine you've got this insult, your body's attacking those cells, you can end up with hypochlorhydria or even achlorhydria, little or no stomach acid. You may also, the reason it's called pernicious anemia, you may be anemic because the same cell type produces intrinsic factor, a protein that is required for B12 to be absorbed into the body. So if somebody had an autoimmune condition, I'd, I'd want them to get that antibody test just to make sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then while we're on the low acid topic, right, I'd also want to look at H. pylori because over time, that bacteria that infects your stomach can cause atrophic gastritis, can damage the cells that line your stomach and you lose functionality wherever these little colonies of infections are. And so if they're near your parietal cells, you could have low stomach acid. If they're near other types of cells that produce regulatory hormones that regulate stomach acid, you could end up with too high stomach acid, mm. hyperchlorhydria, and those are the people that are at risk for ulcers. So you wanna look at that, you wanna look at uh, if somebody, you know, say they have sports injuries and they take a lot of NSAIDs, because mm -hmm. those can cause gastritis, damage the stomach lining. It's the same story all over. So you want to know if they have that. And also these NSAIDs can damage the small intestine, condition called NSAID enteropathy. Whole other story, but equally you know, problematic. And, and of course, if they're on taking H2 blockers or proton pump inhibitors, you know, game over. They have no stomach acid when they're well, taking it. That's what I was just going to ask you, because you know, how many billions between prescription and over-the-counter of acid blockers are floating around in people's systems. And um, I, I get that it's a, it, it has, for somebody who's suffering with acid indigestion and reflux at night, or whatever, when they go to sleep, it must feel like an answer to prayer if they get relief pretty quick from those things, which I think they do. I mean, I've even, I used to, when I was a chef, high stress, whatever, bad eating habits, Maalox tabs were my best friend, right? They felt really good. However, how does somebody that, and I know that long-term use of those things is contraindicated, but most doctors don't say it's good for three months, six months, and then we're getting you off of here. And then how do you, I mean, 
what solution could you offer somebody if not for that, if they're in pain? Well, I, I work with people in this situation every day. And by the way, I mentioned this study we were doing with a teaching hospital in Chicago. And it, it is on people with reflexes, 90 people in the study. It's about halfway enrolled right now. But they aren't just people with reflex that want to try the diet and see if they get better. They actually have to go off. They have to be willing to go off the proton pump inhibitor and mm -hmm. try diet as an alternative. So we'll see what happens with that. But when I work with people that have chronic acid reflux, whether it's laryngopharyngeal reflux or heartburn, any version of reflux, and they are taking these acid-reducing medicines. First of all, for, for LPR, the throat issues, this has been several studies and meta-analyses, and the proton pump inhibitors, acid-reducing drugs, don't work any better than placebo. Wow. So it, they're still highly recommended by a lot of doctors to treat that. I'm not sure why, because the data says they're not really that helpful. Might find somebody that says it helps a little bit. But for heartburn, absolutely, you know, half of the people that take these drugs for heartburn-related issues find symptomatic relief. Half don't. But even the ones that do, you don't want to be on these for a very long time, for a couple of weeks or a month, probably not a big deal. But the list of long-term health consequences, side effects too, but long-term health consequences, significant long-term health consequences is, is just grows all the time. Every year, there's a few new papers that come out, whether it's heart problems or kidney damage or an increased risk of pneumonia. Another big one is an increased risk of Clostridia difficile infection, which tends to come back more often and is more difficult to treat. Because imagine, you know, these PPIs, they're getting rid of the stomach acid, acid which is one of your control mechanisms for these bacterial populations. And so they change. And there's been studies, they can show the microbiome changes when people are on these medicines. And the normal protective role it plays against when C. diff is to enter your intestines from any number of sources, whether you visit a nursing home or a doctor's office, you picked up these spores and, and they enter your uh, digestive tract. You're a healthy microbiome and your own healthy immune system can protect you. But people that are either immune compromised or they have dysbiosis, unbalanced bacterial populations, they don't get that kind of protection. And so they're more susceptible to that. While we're on the subject of medication, prescription medication, let's talk about antibiotics. Mm. Friend or foe, I get it when you need them because you have a bacteria mm. raging through your system, you need to shut it down, right? But frequency right. and long-term use, talk about that and a healthy gut. Not only am I somebody that's had to take them from time to time. I had Lyme disease a few years ago. Bad case, collapsed. You too. I collapsed didn't collapse. on the couch. It was long term. Collapsed on the couch and found the tick right in the middle of my back where I couldn't reach it. Mm. Had been hiking in New Hampshire four days earlier, so it was really clear cut. Identified it and, and had to go and get some doxycycline, which was horrible in my gut, but mm -hmm. I didn't want Lyme disease either. I spent a good part of my career working on antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. I studied it when I was a postdoc at Tufts. I was looking at the transfer of resistance genes for clindamycin, an antibiotic, between intestinal bacteria. So in this case, Bacteroides fragilis and E. coli. We were kind of interested in how these genes spread around. And we published that work. And then I went to, from academics, I joined um, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, and I worked for many years 
on antibiotic resistance and also antibiotic development. I worked on the development of ciprofloxacin. It's an antibiotic that's saved a lot of lives, mm-hmm. but it also has side effects like they all do. And not only some possible health effects, uh, Achilles tendon issues and so forth, but these antibiotics do wreak havoc on, on the gut microbiota. They will reduce the diversity. They're not just going in there and killing the bad strains or the ones that you don't like or the ones causing you symptoms of killing a wide variety of them. And, and that variety that they kill or inhibit, some, some antibiotics are static, they just stop the growth, and some are cytal, they kill. Every antibiotic has a certain dose range and pharmacokinetics, how well it will reach different tissues and all of this kind of stuff. And some antibiotics stay in the gut. They also have a spectrum which types of bacteria or other microbes do they kill or inhibit? And so a lot of the antibiotics these days, a broad spectrum. And it's great because even when you don't know what the infection is caused by, or you didn't culture it, you might kill it with one or two of these broad spectrum antibiotics. The downside is they will kill an even wider range of microbes in the gut. And so there's been studies on that, and it shows that the, there is some level of, of dysbiosis after antibiotics. functionally it tends to recover in the following months because other bacteria kind of fill in the spot with whatever the role of that particular microbe was, whether it's helping to break down certain fibers or sugars, but it's less diverse. And so it's it's going to be less dynamic and less robust for all aspects of health, including how well they help break down the foods that we don't digest complex carbohydrates and and other things that enter our gut. They help regulate bile levels. Bacteria and the liver work together to regulate bile levels. It's some really complex but interesting science. They are involved in crosstalk with our immune system and many, many other things. So all of those things will be impacted. So what I say, what I write in my books and my blogs, when I work with people, there will be times when you need to take an antibiotic, but try to make that as less often as possible. I do believe that myself. I had a cuticle infection a few years ago. It was, it was a terrible little infection. It was very swollen, very sore, even brushing by a fabric, which is very painful. And I knew I had to do something, but I knew the more dangerous type of infection in your finger is when it's on the pad, not the cuticle. And so I decided that I was not going to take antibiotics for that. I I think some people might have. It it didn't look good. So I started soaking it in salts every night, soften it up. And then one night I just cut up my courage. I'm no surgeon, but I got a scalpel out and I lanced it. And then I kept, you know, cleaning it and soaking it and keeping like bacitracin on it. and, and, uh, And it went away. And I just, you know, I was proud of myself for not buckling and going on an antibiotic, but it does take a little more effort to go the holistic route for things, but I just, I really, I do feel that strongly about avoiding antibiotics unless you absolutely need to be on them. And yogurt doesn't sound like it's up to the task of really replenishing all that evil that has just been reaped by those drugs. What do you say about taking yogurt? Yeah. With yogurt, and a little bit of yogurt, I, I recommend people, people with functional GI issues. IBS, GERD, and so forth, limit the amount of kind of all of these sugars and cups. So I would recommend they might try 
a plain yogurt sweetened with like a non-carbohydrate sweetener. How do you consider sugar alcohols non-carbohydrate sweeteners? Sugar alcohols, they're not technically a, a carbohydrate, but they're very closely related. And they're related in an important way in that just like carbohydrates, they're very fermentable by bacteria. Mm. And they're difficult for humans to digest and absorb. So that's why if you go on the FDA website and put in you know, sorbitol or some of these sugar alcohols, You'll see the warnings on the FDA website that will say these will cause, you know, gas, bloating, diarrhea. If you have too much of them, you're going to be really careful. So in the fast track diet approach, we do limit sugar alcohols with one exception. Erythritol is a unique sugar alcohol that's not metabolized by the human body. It's not metabolized by microbes. And it's, it's a natural sweetener. It's produced by, by fungi. That's one of the ones I use. I use a blend of erythritol and monk fruit, which I think is, is a very good one. You know, like anything, there will be some outliers, some people that say, well, you know, I use, if I use too much of that erythritol, I get nauseous. And there's been studies where they've shown, and, and, and there are a couple of people who report a couple of symptoms here or there, but these things are so much better than sugar. I guess yeah. that's my answer. Yeah, yeah. Sucrose and fructose. And so I forget why we were talking about that, but that's, that's the deal on sugar. I was just asking if yogurt was up to the challenge oh, of all and, those things. Right. And yogurt. So, and also about yogurt, I guess while we're on the topic, is they're made with a few, a handful of lactic acid bacterial strains. So are they gut healthy? Probably, you know, if you have a half a cup and it's doesn't not loaded with, with a bunch of sugar, probably okay, probably good. If you wanted a wider complement of lactic acid bacteria, I think lacto-fermented vegetables are even better. Kimchi, sauerkraut come to mind. You know, most pickles, store-bought pickles are not truly lacto-fermented right. pickles. I, I make my own, so I, I get them that way. You will get a broad variety of lactic acid bacteria, but you know, when you compare that to all of the bacteria in our gut, the trillions of bacteria from a thousand different species, it's so diverse that the, the probiotics we use and the probiotic foods, it's like, sure, yeah, it's okay, it's good, you know, but I don't think you can really expect it to just come in and fix everything like that. Right, which is true of any time we look to one isolated food, med, but whatever, to fix the problem. We're still a holistic being with a whole environment around us and people and emotions driving hormones, right? So it's always more complex than, but I just wanted to talk about the yogurt thing because the doctor, even I had to, I was given antibiotics. I didn't take them. Don't tell them because I got an infection uh, at a, at a wound, you know, a site where they did a little suture thing. And I just had this feeling it wasn't that bad, right? Three days, no, no fever. No, no. I was like, all right. But the doctor, you know, dutifully said, now, do you eat yogurt? Make sure you have a house. I was like, yeah, yeah, I got you. I'm good. Uh, yeah. this, you know. But anyway, and I, I didn't want to not take it, but I didn't want to take it. So yeah. <laughs> it all worked out fine. If I wouldn't somebody, suggest if somebody people- has good luck with something or it's their favorite thing. I try to support that whenever I can. Yeah. It'll yeah. do no harm. Yeah. And unless yogurt is not agreeing with your stomach, I think it can be a healthy food, especially non-sweetened. I like yeah. to sweeten mine with berries and coconut flakes and things like that. And it works out fine. A little exactly. 
And I'd agree. And I do that once in a while. I especially like a Greek yogurt with, with herbs you know, for like kebabs, kind of maybe the half Greek person. A couple of cucumbers in there stirred yeah, in. Cucumbers, I like yep. cucumbers. Yeah. So I like it too. And here's something that, that is really positive about fermented foods, whether it's fermented dairy or fermented vegetables. And there's some fermented meats too. We can talk about those later. But the bacteria, these lactic acid bacteria are breaking down sugars in these foods. And so what you get on the other end is a well-preserved lower carb food. Mm. So I'm all about watching the level of carbohydrates in our diet. And so that's a good way to do that. So for that reason alone, of course, when you go to the yogurt aisle, 90% of them are going to have berries and sugar and they're, you know, it's yeah. a sugar tree. And chocolate so, chips and crunchy uh, flakes and yeah, yeah, exactly. crazy. Exactly. So I'm a big fan of the low carb diet as many, I don't know, 20 years ago or so mm. when I, it's funny, when I was in San Diego, you and I were talking about California earlier. I worked for a heart surgeon. I was the chef of this new concept called Daly's Fit and Fresh. It was the first quick food, healthy food restaurant. But Dr. Daly was at the time a proponent of low fat, high carb. Mm -hmm. So all the recipes couldn't have more than 12 or 15% fat, which is hard when you're doing fast food, even, you know, grilled chicken meat, whatever. And I had to make them taste good too. <laughs> thank you. Yes, I was, it was a challenge, but I, I learned a lot. I had a great experience and his point was, and the point is still the same, but the dietary recommendations have changed was as a heart surgeon, he said, 60% of the patients I see and operate on don't have to be on this table. And so we're going to try and educate them, giving them good food, right? So now, like I said, the prescription for the ratio of carbs to fat and protein has changed for most people, mm. but the sentiment was the same. And now we know what lifestyle is like 80% re related to how we age and whether we're sick or well, or I know that things go wrong in the body genetically. However, that's a small percentage is all I'm saying to what we can do and how we can care for the body through our choices of diet, high fat, low mm. carb, whatever it is. But low carb seems to always come up when I speak to docs as the, not the solution for everybody, but many, many people benefit from having less of these carbohydrates that create you know, more sugar in the body, et cetera. And I'm just curious if you think that that's the case, like would everybody benefit? Because some people say, I can't do high fat. I don't feel well. I'm a high carb person. That's how I run. So are there sugar burners and fat burners as they like to say in the keto world? or? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way you phrase that question, right? There are people that may do well on, on a lower fat, higher carb diet. Protein in all these discussions is somewhere, you know, in the yeah, middle. Yeah, somewhere in the middle, yeah. Um, and it may depend on where their genes evolved, right? People okay. closer to the equator consume a diet of, of more carbohydrates than people that get further away and all the way up to the the Inuit and, and Northern mm -hmm. Canada will eat fewer and fewer carbohydrates because they're not available, at least back in ancestral days. So there, is, there was a variation in, in the normal diet people ate back then. And it comes out in gene, genes that are expressed. For instance, there's, there's a wide range of um, gene copy number for the amylose gene and saliva, right? We have this gene, this enzyme in our saliva can be up to 60% of the protein in our saliva that breaks down starch while we're chewing it before we even swallow. But some people have very few copy numbers for that gene and don't have very much of that amylase in the saliva. Some people have high gene copy numbers, kind of a duplication of the gene. They have high levels of amylase 
And not only do they tend to digest starch better, but they tend to have better blood sugar control from hmm. eating starches too. So there probably is this evolutionary difference. But what I think has happened is that we've kind of overridden anything that's reasonable. Because even in those areas where there were more carbs, you might eat a fruit that's seasonal, you wouldn't have mm -hmm. it, you know, all times of the year, you might not have it, eat as much of some of these vegetables if you, you know, had an animal kill. So nowadays, sugar is bigger and sweeter. The crossbred and crossbred to get bigger, plumper, juicier, sweeter. And you can have them shipped up from Chile in the winter in the, in the US and so forth. So you can always have access to all the sugar and all this high carb. And I think the numbers are clear that a huge number of people in the US, probably the rest of the world the same, are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Mm -hmm. I mean, potentially up to 60% or more of, yeah. of the people in the US. And that is an insidious disease. You know, people, if their blood sugar, fasting blood sugar is showing up, you know, uh, anywhere over 100 or 105 or their A1C levels are high, take notice because you do not want the complications of diabetes. And diabetes, I mean, there's obviously autoimmune type 1 diabetes. For the most part, I'm, I'm referring to type 2. Mm -hmm. uh, as we get older, a lot of it is diet driven. It's a carbohydrate, carbohydrate intolerance consuming too many carbohydrates. And so there's a number of people in the, in the nutritional circles that I'm involved with. It's a lot of experts in this area and a lot of doctors treating people and either getting them off insulin completely or dramatically reducing their insulin, the amount of insulin they have to take just by having teaching these people how to really watch their diet and go on kind of a low carb, high fat diet. So in, in the case of pre-diabetes, diabetes, you could throw metabolic syndrome in there as well. There's no question in my mind, it's, a, it's a, the inability to process carbohydrates metabolically, and you should be on a lower carbohydrate diet. So if you can't be, well, you better come up with something else, whether it's you know, fasting or, you know, but you're, you're, you're intolerant to carbohydrates metabolically. It's interesting that in the digestive health space, in the area that I do research and work in, that carbohydrate intolerance is also a digestive problem. But instead of high blood sugar issues, you've got these, you know, overgrowths, dysbiotic growth, low diversity, but high abundance, a lot of gas, a lot of symptoms. So you're also intolerant to carbohydrates from a digestive standpoint. So the best of all worlds is a low carbohydrate diet. But of course, in my approach, in, in my consultation, there are some options with these pro-absorption behaviors and so forth, and understanding the difference between these individual carbohydrate species, that there, there are options to consume more carbohydrates for somebody that can, that they're otherwise metabolically healthy. Otherwise, you wouldn't, wouldn't want them because the carbohydrates that are least likely to impact your digestion are the ones that are higher glycemic index. Mm, more apt to impact your blood sugar, like jasmine rice and sushi rice. They can contain the starch amylopectin, which is very much easier to digest and break down and absorb than other starches like, uh, you know, in basmati rice or Uncle Ben's rice. 
that have a lot more amylose, a linear starch molecule that's tougher to break down. It's more like a fiber. And so it's more likely to drive digestive issues. So there are, you know, the, the book and, and my consultation program gets into the weeds on that a little bit because there are other, there are options. Some people, for whatever reason, either feel like it stabilizes their weight to have a few more carbs or they're convinced that it's uh, messing with the hormones. So we can finesse it that way. Mm-hmm. I was happy but I'm to- talking a half a cup of rice. Not talking. Oh, come on. Not that whole big quart they give you when you get Chinese. <laughs> not the whole like white container with the little metal. That's top. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. I was, I, when I was reading something on your website, one of the things you said uh, is about chewing, speaking of amylase, chewing your food 25 times, I think you said. And I remember when I was a kid, somewhere in high school biology, maybe they said, you should chew your food 21 times before swallowing. To this day, I don't count anymore because I just know I am constantly made fun of because I'm the slowest eater on the planet. And guess uh, what? I have a really good gut. So I don't know whether that's the whole problem. You know, good for you. The whole I, solution, do the same. I do the same thing. Generally, I'm on a low-carb diet. Me too. But occasionally, I'm not. I go out with my, my friend. He's got a, a big trawler, and we take it up to Nova Scotia. Oh, but fun. on his boat, there's granola bars and oatmeal and bread. And it's, it's a carb-rich environment. So a lot of times, I'll end up eating carbs for the better part of a week. And when I get home, I have symptoms. I might have soft stools. I'm like, man, I need to just get on a low carb diet immediately. But when I'm there, I at least will do the behaviors. I'll eat slowly, just like you and chew really well. I'll watch my portions. Yeah. And water. Speaking of motility, water, right? Throughout the day. I just want to remind people, you rattled off your uh, website pretty quickly. So it's digestivehealthinstitute.org. That's and correct. Mm-hmm. you have a store there, which has Absolutely. your books, which I assume the books that are here have been edited and polished up and don't have typos anymore is the first one. Did. Well, no, the new ones uh, did get a professional, broke, got a professional editor. So the Fast Tracked Diet series, one on IBS, one on Hopper. And yes, professionally edited, very spiffy and clean professional cover, all the things I didn't do in the first one. Well, heck, it was And they can get access and read about the Fast Track Diet mobile app. I was just going to say, you've got an app for Android and Apple. Yeah. And it's a good tool because it lists a lot of foods. The, these FP, there's an FP calculation I created that will basically, it's symptom potential. What's FP? Tell people what FP is. It stands for fermentation potential. Okay. And it's, it's a rearrangement of the glycemic index formula. Glycemic index tells you how quickly one carbohydrate is going to be digested and absorbed into your bloodstream compared to glucose, which is absorbed most quickly. So that's what the glycemic index is. How, how fast will this food raise my blood sugar? Right. So I've rearranged the equation to measure this fermentation potential because what we really wanted to know was for any given food, how likely is it the carbohydrates in that food will stay behind and fuel overgrowths of bacteria? So we, we had a different purpose. So we rearranged the equation and, you know, you, people can plug it into Excel. If they just Google FP calculator, it will take them to a free calculator on, on the website. But the app, of course, has that all built in. So if you just, you know, say you're going to add carrots to your dinner. It will ask you how much, and you say, okay, maybe a quarter cup. Well, it will already calculate. It has the nutritional facts, and it will calculate these FP points. And then you can change the serving size, too. If you say, oh, half a cup, I can't afford that many points today, you can can reduce it, and it will 
keeps track of that. And then you can stand back at the end of the week or month and you can look at your symptoms because you can plug your symptoms in. So it will track your symptoms, will track these FP points, and you can stand back and look and see, are my symptoms following when I have higher FP foods? Usually they will. But if they don't, maybe something else is going on. So you can see both the points and your symptoms being tracked together. And you can use it to for shopping lists and making meals and all of that. And it has these, you know, these 1,100 or so foods to pick from in, in wow. all these tables of dairy, vegetables, meat and seafood, sweets, condom, you know, the whole nine yards. So you wine. can... Wine? Wine. Of course. of course it has wine. Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Good for you. I'm I'm a whiskey drinker, but I, I like a good wine too. Of course, you can't live in California and right. Had to, yeah, definitely. So somebody could listening to this call, somebody could say, I really need what that doctor offers. They can have an appointment with you. Yes, virtual. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I'm a consulting microbiologist, right? I'm not uh, a licensed physician. I'm a consulting microbiologist, but people can make an appointment with me. And I typically, you can make a one-hour appointment with me, pick my brain, and then I'll write a report afterwards. But I typically recommend people book a couple of sessions because that gives us a chance to have one deep dive for at least an hour on the front end. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, I'll spend a few hours with all that information and I'll generate a report. I'll also send people, if they have another session, a diet and symptoms log. And I ask people to keep that log for two weeks prior to the second session, and if possible, send it to me the night before the second session, mm, that makes sense. because I will really spend some time on what are they eating? What symptoms are they having? When are they having those symptoms? Because not all foods and types of carbohydrates are fermented at the same rate. Mm -hmm. And everybody's microbiota is different. And so you can have digestive symptoms and say, oh man, I just need to stop eating that yogurt. When really it might not have been that half cup of yogurt, but it might have been the pizza you had the night before. Mm. Because with, with a lot of these tough fibers, it can really take a long time before you consume it, before your bacteria working collaboratively, all of these types of microbes, they specialize in breaking different bonds in, the, in these complex fibers of many, many different types of bonds work collaboratively to start breaking this down and fermenting it and cross-feeding other bacteria. And at some point, it can be many, many hours after you eat it, they build up kind of a head of steam. And then they start generating gas and you're feeling symptoms, but you might be blaming the wrong food. Mm. That's why this log, the way I look at it, takes that into account. And of course, people consume things in mixed meals. So you might blame the pepperoni, but actually it was the uh, wheat and the pizza dough. So there's all this, that's why the food log is, is very help, helpful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and so I write these reports after every session and people can look at it. They can make dietary changes. They might try an over-the-counter supplement. I won't and can't recommend any prescription medicines, but they can also take these reports and share them with their, with their doctor. Yeah, and I think that's the really valuable part of this kind of situation for people that want to keep with their doctor, right? They're happy with their family physician or internist, but they feel like they're not getting the answers that they need and they don't want to have a surgery or an endoscopy or yeah. I mean it's yeah something you couldn't do in that in that format because it's not a 15 minute visit. It's a deep dive and is and, and in one of these programs is many, many hours go into really understanding 
what's happening and what to do about it. And some of these conditions are challenging. There can be multiple conditions and multiple things to keep in mind. There, I'll take on some unusual cases occasionally. Uh, I worked with somebody that had pouchitis. So she had inflammatory bowel disease, ulcer, ulcerative colitis. Mm. And had her colon removed, but ended up with pouchitis. Very challenging situation where you know, half of the people that have this pouch made from the ileum part of the small intestine, they get this very inflammatory situation. So in certain unique cases, if I take on a case, I've agreed that it's going to be kind of a research project. Mm. So I'll do, I'll do those occasionally too, not all the time. <laughs> okay. All of you one-off specialty cases, Dr. Norm is your man. Well, this has been so fascinating. I could, we could spend another couple of hours going on the rabbit holes that are still left to be undiscovered. So maybe we'll have you back at sure. the end of the year after people, have, maybe the beginning of the year after people have indulged too much and everybody has earned yeah. an acid indigestion. Okay, people, don't be shy if you are suffering with any of these kinds of heartburn, acid reflux, irritable bowel, small intestinal SIBO. At least stop by Dr. Norm's website and check out his books. He's got lots of free resources, including recipes. So for people who say, well, I know that I should be eating more or less of this, but I don't know how to cook it or I don't know what to do with it. He's got some recipes there too. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Peeps, I'll be back next week. Be well till then. That's the end of another episode of the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If there's anything that you heard or hear when you tune in that you think would benefit a friend, a sister, a mother, hey, even some guys, send them my way, would you? And if you've not ever been to the website, rebelliouswellnessover50.com, head on over there. There are resources, things that I don't always get to on the podcast that might help you age better. Be well till next time. And stay that way.